Well, good evening, everyone. So I'd like to start this evening by sharing something that my root teacher, Jack Cornfield, says often. He says, your life looks like your mind, and your mind looks like your life. And it's useful to think about that for a minute, uh, because we're all still arriving. Many of us are still arriving, landing, finding our seat, being as fully here as we can. And we bring our lives to the cushion when we come to sit. We bring our hearts, we bring our worries, we bring our, our, um, our goodness, we bring our fears. And so the room gets very crowded really quickly <laughs> after we consider all that we carry in this human body. So reflect just for a moment on what it is you brought with you to this retreat. What did you bring with you? What's still with you? What still occupies, even if occasionally, in your heart mind as you sit? This transitioning and out of the marketplace into the monastery, into this temple. We're still arriving. Still, for many of us from our families and from just being in that um, way of life and speed. And then we come here and all of a sudden the brakes are on and we sit. And the body might be still, but the mind is still doing what the mind does. One of the things that I'm aware of bringing on retreat and aware of um, sitting with is, is this um, terror that is in my family around so many black men and boys being killed. And they're not in this practice. <laughs> so there's the intensity and loud fear and the burning of the heart and the pure rawness of suffering. So there's been a lot of time I've spent over these past several weeks talking people off the, le the ledges of um, doing crazy things or acting impulsively and it's that place that we all know so well that we can go to when we feel endangered when we feel a loved one is uh, in trouble and when we uh, know that the root of that is just um, a lot of fear and pain and so I'm in some ways grateful for this practice uh, because it certainly kept me many times from being on that ledge because there's many times I've been right there with them. <laughs> you know, as righteous and as furious as, uh, as the next person. But luckily it's not where I stay long anymore. 
it used to be <laughs> where I lived in my heart. But I'm able, through this practice and through other intentions, um, I was appreciating yesterday when Tara invited us to look at our aspirations, look at our intentions. And I can remember very clearly when I decided that hate was not going to be an ongoing option in my life. And when you remove that, you're really left with dealing with what life offers and finding a different way, being committed to finding a different way to deal with the karmic seeds, the blooms that show up in your face, in your life, in a different way, in a non-harming way, in a non-hating way. So we bring our lives to the cushion, whatever they, whatever is happening in your life, whatever grabs your heart. And it comes and it sits with you and is actually grateful for this slowing down and being more intimate with the life that's living inside of you. That's, that's the beauty of this practice. To be with what might have jerked us around at one point in our lives in a more kinder and wiser way. So what I'd like to talk about this evening is, this, uh, is the restless and worrying mind and this part of us, all of us, that uh, knows this place in the mind where it's, it's, it, it's, um, it just, it's just elsewhere. <laughs> it's just busy um, being somewhere else other than right here. It's the nature of the mind to think and plan and do all kinds of things. It's a particular kind of flavor of dukkha when we start to see that the quality of the mind is, is actually in a perpetual state of restlessness and worry, which is also another way of seeing how fear dances inside of our heart, mind, and body. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit this evening. Restlessness and worry is one of five of the hindrances, mental factors that the Buddha talks about in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And it's a way that we can start to name our experiences, call it what it is, so that we can then um, shift from being immersed with the activity of mind to actually witnessing what's happening. But I want to say a little bit more about restlessness and worry before we go there. What restlessness and worry is doing uh, is not a conscious process, so we're not trying to restlessness ourselves and worry ourselves. It's, uh, it's, an, it's a habit of mind. It's an activity of mind. It's a, it's a way that we've learned how to uh, relate to um, what arises. So we're looking at how to do that a little differently. So underneath restlessness and worry is oftentimes a lot of fear. When I look at the disturbance with these killings and I look at the wars that are in the world and I look at the knee-jerk impulse reaction of police officers, I mean it's just a lot of things that I'm seeing and when you, when you strip off all of the postures there's just a tremendous amount of fear that's underneath all of it. 
the activity of our mind spinning, 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 uh, underneath that also is a level of fear that we carry in our heart and mind. The quality of it, it it's, a, it's like a, a vortex that's tangled into overstimulated energies. It's, it's, it's this, this sense of tightening that's overstimulated energy that's just buzzing around and bouncing. It's almost like echoes bouncing in a, in a big open space. There's a quality of restlessness and worry that feels a little desperate. We can also feel agitation and boredom, distortion. We could go on long journeys of fantasy, planning. We usually have a little top ten list when it comes to restlessness and worry. Like I have one where I'm always writing the book. You know, always writing the book. Every talk is like writing a book. You know, I was telling my team over here, I'm just so tired. I'm so restless and worried from preparing for the talk, you know, because I've got like five chapters I've written for this. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just a crazy way that the mind does, does its thing. And they all shared that they do the same thing. For some reason, that just made me feel so much better. <laughs> But there's a sense of imbalance and there's an attempt in the worry to perfect something, to get it right. And there's a fear that if you don't, something bad's going to happen. So there's this kind of uh, urgency and tightening that happens. It's not just the thought of restlessness and worry that's activated. The body is actually in relationship and it tightens and is in response to that. So it's a dis-ease in a large sense of the world. And we can't make whatever it is we're obsessing about, we can't fix it, we can't make it go away, because if we could, we would have done that already. There's a quality of the restless and worried mind that is rooted in either the past or the future. So we're either worried about something that we've done and we're hoping, like hell, it never happens again, so if we just get it right this time, it won't happen, or we're projected into the fear, thinking about something that could happen, trying to perfect it so that uh, we know it's going to go our way. Alan Watts, the Zen practitioner, said the past and future are real illusions. They exist in the present, which is what there is and all there is. Only 15% of our time is on the present, where we are open to both fear and magic. 15% of our time. So we're elsewhere with this fear. And again, it's not a conscious process. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a habit of mind. And one of the roles that I believe restlessness and worry plays is, is that it actually plays this role of selfing. Because as long as we're kind of caught in that web of the thing that's arising and whatever the thought is and the worry is, you know, the effort of it, the energy that goes in it actually perpetuates a sense of solidity, or at least we think it does. So then we get to hold on to at least something because the alternative is that 
we see the emptiness of what's there. We're left in the spaces in between whatever the object is that's arising. And that can be pretty terrifying for most of us. So the obsession with restlessness and worry, when we start feeding it, is actually perpetuating a sense of selfing for ourselves. We're attempting to clone ourselves to reassure ourselves at some future time. And the problem is that it doesn't work because nothing is permanent. Nothing lasts forever. All things are impermanent. Well, this identity piece is really big. Um, I had a dream not too long ago. Yeah, I had a dream. It's not the Martin Luther King dream, but I am a king and I get to have a dream. So this dream was really something. So I'm walking down the street. I have these bags of, um, I'm not sure what's in the bag, but you know, I'm trying to get somewhere, not sure where. And this big black van pulls up and two big guys jump out, grab me, throw me in the van, and they take off down the street. And we get to this huge warehouse and um, I have to strip off everything before I can enter and not not entering wasn't an option. So all of a sudden I saw all of my things being going up this conveyor belt to this big, big um, what tank. And the, the, the name that was on the tank was repurposing. And so all my stuff was going up this conveyor belt into this big tank. And then I was ushered into this room that looked like um, several city New York blocks. And it was sparkling clean, and, the, and it was loaded with people, and nobody had any clothes on. Everybody sitting around enjoying a lovely meal, having these lovely conversations. It was an atmosphere of meta. It seemed to me that some of the people had been there a very long time and weren't in any hurry to leave, but nobody had anything. So this sense of being stripped of a self and this identity and all your stuff being repurposed <laughs> was a beautiful um, kind of image for me to, to kind of play with. It immediately had me thinking about, you know, okay, so what do I really need to get rid of in my life, including my thoughts that I keep tightly in the bags that are labeled purpose, not repurpose, but it gave me some good ideas. But this sense of selfing is, uh, is big when we attach ourselves to what we're restless and worried about. The Buddha taught that the self was never meant to be real, that we appear solid, concrete, but we're, it's all an illusion. We're all a series of perpetually changing processes. And then Joseph Goldstein says very beautifully that it's not about letting go as much as it's about realizing that you can't hold on, that there's nothing you can really hold on to. And that's also your thoughts. They're all impermanent. Donna Fowles is a poet and wrote this beautiful poem that I think really speaks to this 
idea of not holding uh, and being with the impermanence, the, the, the constant changing of life and of our minds. And some of you may have heard this, but it's a beautiful and timely piece. She says, there is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasy, failures and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, patience becomes simply bearing the truth. And the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So it's not about trying to control this mind, because if we could have done that, we probably would have did it already. It's about looking at our relationship to restlessness and worry, to the actual wanting mind, to our desire to be elsewhere, to our desire to have what's present be something other than what it is. That's where the suffering really kicks in. So I'd like to offer a few strategies to kind of be with the restless mind, be with this part of ourselves that's insisting on selfing. My first strategy I'd like to talk about is, is, is just to establish mindfulness. And uh, we're doing that here on this retreat. But the establishment of mindfulness is uh, we're getting the instructions each morning on, on how to sit with our experiences, and that's very important. But, it, but establishing mindfulness in the way I'd like to talk about it right now has to do with um, our relationship, opening a lens of awareness so that we are not tightly fixed on the object of restlessness and worry or fear. It's almost like a zoom in, zoom out. When we're zoomed in and merged with restlessness and worry, it's hard to see anything else. And mindfulness helps us open that lens more broadly so that we can see the, the true nature a bit more of what's going on. I like the, word, uh, the way Bhante Gunaratara, who's a Sri Lankan Theravadan Buddhist here in Virginia, speaks about mindfulness in his book, Mindfulness in Plain English. He talks about this sense of spaciousness, spaciousness versus fixation, and he says it this way. Awareness happens just before you start thinking. A flashing split second just before you focus your eyes and your mind on the thing. Just before you objectify it, clamp down on it mentally, and segregate it from the rest of existence. Just before your mind says, oh, it's a dog, or it's fear, or whatever it is, 
that few seconds just before you conceptualize it as a thing is mindfulness. This soft, unfocused awareness contains a very deep knowing that is lost as soon as you focus, as soon as you know. Once the mind perceives, mindfulness is quickly passed over. Mindfulness practice teaches us to prolong that moment of awareness. So the, the span of looking at the activities of mind includes not just the object that we're fixated on, but the spaces before it and the spaces after it. So with mindfulness, we're opening our awareness to see um, a broader picture. It's kind of like if you go to the movies and somebody's standing up in the theater blocking the screen. You know, you know uh, we don't get to see the whole picture, right? Because somebody's kind of right there in the middle. And, and they might be short, but by the time it projects on the screen, it's really big, right? The mind is in a similar way. So we want to open our awareness when we're working with restlessness and worry to see if we can see before and after those, those periods of time. What's happening then? What's happening uh, in our awareness prior to our recognition that restlessness, worry, or fear is present? It could be an interesting experiment with Wallace Stevens, who's an American uh, modernist um, poet, writes about uh, 13 ways of looking at blackbirds. And he says it this way. He says, I don't know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendo, the blackbird whistling or just after. So we know when we've had an experience with something, there's usually a residence or a residue that we can also feel into if we can pause long enough in it. And there's freedom in that pause right after the thing itself is no longer our object of focus. And that's an opportunity for us as we're looking uh, in our mindfulness practice. Bhikkhu Thera says it even a slightly different way as he talks about bare attention. When we're attending in our mindfulness practice, he says, bare attention waits quietly for the things of the future to appear before its eyes and thus turn into present objects, then vanish again into the past. So these are ways we are with the waves of our experience and not fixed on just what arises. So the task of mindfulness as a strategy is to keep the lens open and not fixed to keep the lens zoomed out. The beauty of inflection and the beauty of innuendo, what arises and also what it's like when it passes away. To see the true nature of the self in its fundamental unreality 
It's non-solidification. And to relax the grip of our ego, which keeps us uh, selfing as a way of reassuring ourselves in false refuge. Another strategy in working with the restless and worried mind is to don't believe your thoughts. That might be easier said than done, but the mind has a tendency to interfere with its own satisfaction. And I heard some statistic, I think it was something like 99% of our thoughts are rehashed and 80% of that 99% is negative. So um, that, can real, that can be a real downer. <laughs> so we're looking at our relationship to the thoughts because the thoughts are going to just keep doing what thoughts do. But how are we relating to the thoughts? Mark Twain says, I've suffered a great many catastrophes in my life. Most of them never happened. <laughs> so we're making it all up. In some ways, we're making it all up. We can be hypersensitive to thoughts in, in an adversive way, but also not able to let them go. This little Facebook thing says, my doctor asked if members of my family suffered from insanity. I replied, no, we all seem to enjoy it. <laughs> and then I was working with a yogi once who came in and she said, I'm just overwhelmed by my own intelligence. I just don't, I just don't, I'm just tired of my own mind. <laughs> And Winticott says, we are poor indeed if we are only sane. So we're not trying to, to eliminate uh, insanity. But fundamentally, thoughts are unreliable. They're untrustworthy. You, you can't count on them. They're unstable. And we're always, wherever we are with a thought or a belief, we're always in the middle of something. We always have just a few pieces of the truth. And it's useful to remember that because we can snap out of our trance there. It doesn't feel that way. It feels pretty absolute, sealed, wrapped, shrink-wrapped, ziplocked, you know. But it's not. It's only particles of the truth. It's a piece. We're all a piece of a bigger puzzle. And it's useful to stay open to what, what else might want to reveal itself. Part of this uh, perpetuating, uh, uh, this kind of adding to uh, our thoughts is a term papancha, that's a Pali word, that uh, pas is, means one and pancha means five. And so it's the um, multiplication or the proliferation of thought that happens. It's our habit of mind where we morph it. It's kind of like if you're in an amusement park and you know you go to the cotton candy thing and they give you the white long cone and then they start spinning it around the cotton candy and before you know it, you have a huge Afro cotton candy <laughs> in your hand that you're probably walking a little wobbly with. That's pure sugar and sticky. And, um, but it started with just this sing single stick and that's how the mind and thoughts morph into something bigger than life. And before you know it, you're carrying something sticky 
that's not the real truth, but it's what's been woven. This is a, a really common thing that happens with our thoughts. Uh, and we can probably reflect on times when, when that's happened. I can remember growing up, my oldest sisters had the responsibility of uh, looking after us younger sisters. I come from a large family. And my oldest sister hated that job. My mother worked two jobs, and so she, she had this responsibility of taking care of us. And she hated it, and, and I always felt like I was in a war zone when she was around. And I remember growing up being terrified of her. And it took me, I remember sitting in this practice and realizing one day that, oh, she's, she was only three years older than me. And she was just four inches taller than me. And she was also scared like me, but I, I couldn't put that together at the time because my fear had morphed so huge at just the mere mention of her name that I couldn't relax or I couldn't know and see clearly in the face of her presence. And she visited me regular, regularly in my meditation practice. She was a big fear symbol. So when I turn towards the fear to know it more intimately, I can feel what we actually had in common. It could soften around her suffering as well. Um, but prior to that, I had my story, and I was sticking to it like cotton candy. So. But we all do that. So that's Papancha. In, um, in her book, Listening to the Heart, to Nisera, who's also a lovely teacher here in our tradition, she says that Papancha, she talks about Papancha this way, when concepts and thoughts are entertained without wisdom, when concepts and thoughts are entertained without wisdom, without an understanding of the true nature of things. Uninterrupted, this leads to grasping, increasing complexity, and perpetual frustration. When we don't interrupt the morphing of our thoughts with some wise acknowledgement, then um, we perpetuate more dukkha, more suffering. So it's our challenge in the practice to recognize when this is happening and gently intervene. And Ajahn Chah, who's a teacher in our tradition, the Thai forest tradition, uh, he's known for a story that he tells about these big boulders that he brought into the monastery. And um, they were stone markers that were placed around the land. And so he's talking to a teacher one of the monks, and he says, you see, the, see that stone over there? And the monk says, absolutely, I see that stone. And he says, well, is it heavy? And um, the monk says, well, absolutely, of course it's heavy. And Ajahn Chah says, only if you pick it up. <laughs> so that's an example of how we can pick up more and more and, you know, and carry extra layers of... Uh, weight and suffering that then, then we need to. So the challenge is um, don't pick it up. Easier said than done. And to know that they're impermanent, so you're picking up something that's not going to uh, really last. Feelings, mind states, they all change, and they're not to be clung to 
as I, me, or mine. That's a selfing activity. When we grab it and we hold it, we're selfing. And there's suffering in that practice. A third strategy is to try to be in the present moment as much as you can. Um, I heard something that I heard someone say something like, you can never step into time twice. Um, but there's a way that we try to capture time. So I, I like to go to jazz concerts. My partner and I, we go and we try to get a close row to the front so we can, I like the piano keyboard, so I like to see how that's working. And, but I'm inevitably blocked by a million and one cameras of people recording the shows, you know. There's the, um, the capturing of the experience versus having the experience that we, you know, with our technology, we, we kind of do that a lot. You know, how do, I, how do I grab it? How do I hold it? How do I, how do I get it? And while that's happening, the show's still going on. The jazz players are in the experience, the intimacy with what's possible is reduced. So this up, uh, this, this uh, trying to get it, trying to have it, trying to perfect it so that we can be reassured at some point is, uh, it has a delusional quality to it. It's like a gambler's mind. Because one time you hit that jackpot, so if you just keep doing it again, it just might happen again. But uh, we know that has a short life and it's rooted in a false assumption. So, so my Tibetan teacher gave me a funny stay in the present time story. She tells a story of the Buddhas tossed out of a 200-story building in New York that's on fire. So he's tossed out. And then a woman at the 100th floor leans out of the door. She sees the Buddha's body coming down and says, are, are you okay? You know, that's the question we always ask. And the Buddha says, so far, so good. <laughs> so, stand in the present moment. He hadn't hit the bottom yet. So far, so good. So how do we not get too ahead of ourselves, behind ourselves? We're just right here. So, so far, so good. So part of what that requires is that we're able to shift um, away from the object of consciousness to an underlining field of awareness. Can we be aware of the experience we're having instead of the object that, that we're um, taken from? So it's a shift from the story into the experience, the thoughts into what's happening in the body. And um, Tomorrow evening, Pat's going to be talking about the body, and uh, we'll get a bit more information just on being and seeing what it's like to stay in the body little by little as much as we can. But that's a place of uh, pure intimacy and, and uh, more of a direct experience. All of our thoughts have roots in the body. And when we're locked on a thought, Sometimes shifting to the experience in the body, if you can, can be helpful. 
I think um, the, the uh, touching in on your contact with the cushion, your points of contact with your hands, the body sitting and breathing, simple things to begin with can take us out of the story into the field of awareness, the field of experience that we're having. Maybe you won't feel anything there, but even not feeling something is an area of curiosity that you can lean into. Another key thing about being here now is to um, the body scan can be a really helpful tool for tuning into um, the experience of sensations. So taking your time to do a slow body scan, especially with your focus being on releasing tension in the body, noticing where there's any tightness, any buildup of tension. That's, a, that's kind of like a direct indicator um, that can help you see how you're holding a thought or how you're holding a, an experience. So relaxing the muscles, relaxing any tension, any pileup, and it'll come and go like everything else. But tuning into where the tension is in the body, where the tightness is, where the contraction is, and softening there could be really, really useful. Another thing that's important around restlessness and worry and staying here now is when we can notice when restlessness and worry is no longer present, when it has subsided, because it's impermanent. So we want to open our awareness to see those times when all of a sudden you might notice, oh, I'm not so worried right now. Oh, that's not what's present right here. Notice what's there then. Notice what is present in those moments. Those are moments of freedom. When you wake up to the cessation, to the cessation of what, how do you say it? Cessation, I'm now the sensation, now I'm confused. When you wake up to it no longer being your point of focus or fixation. There's a release there that's useful to get to know. So being here now is a useful strategy. It builds intimacy with the experience. And it builds intimacy because our memories happen now. Results of past actions happen now cultural projections happen now. Our actions happen now. And our attitudes about, our, about all of these things are happening here and now. So we want to wake up to the present time because that's what's happening now.
And then the fourth strategy and the last strategy I'll offer on working with this is, um, is, is coming into caring balance with restlessness and worry. Um, sometimes we're, we, we worry, uh, our worries are bigger than the wisdom we have to, to, to manage it all. So we're a little imbalanced. We get our hearts really broken and bruised and, um, and then we trail in a, with papancha into despair and hopelessness and, and um, more suffering because our, our wisdom side isn't seeing clearly uh, what's happening. So the care that we have for the world, for even our own worries, has to be balanced with wisdom. There's so many things we can't fix in the world. You know, we have loved ones in our lives that might be in trouble, that are, you know, have addictions or have uh, mental illnesses or that have been missing or gone for a long time. Or we may have people in our lives that live in other countries or as being disturbed by some of the wars in the world. I mean, everybody you see has a story of worry of something that they can't fix directly. They can't make it better, necessarily. And so we can uh, find ourselves in a place of suffering with that if our strategy around that is to try harder without wisdom. Trying harder could take us into our mind of trying to figure it out and work it out and, you know, and, and we get into a spin on that. Another way to try harder is to, is to know the nature of things and to bring a sense of equanimity and caring for the suffering that you're experiencing from the effort for it to be different. Turning your attention there can be really, really helpful. Sometimes it's useful to reflect on the millions of people in the world who might be suffering just like you are or worried about something just like you are right now so that you join hands and hearts with other people that are also suffering and you can feel the sense of uh, a shared suffering or a human suffering that happens in our lifetime, that you're not... Uh, solely the person suffering. Um, it's not quite like misery loves company, but it's just an understanding that there are many people who suffer and, um, and, and we can join them. And every bit of uh, understanding and wisdom and kindness we can direct towards ourselves is also a way of serving them and supporting them. There's a practice of Tunglen in the Mahayana tradition that's about breathing in the suffering of others and breathing out peacefulness and love and compassion. That can be a lovely practice of connecting, uh, slowing yourself down, and also knowing that uh, you're not alone in this um, fixated um, preoccupation and suffering that we have. 
I often look at the Buddhist um, iconology and that sense of serenity and staying in your seat and the peacefulness that is in the images of the Buddha, that, that carries me uh, a long way. The images oftentimes um, are about serenity and peacefulness. And it reminds me of the equanimity prayers that are in the Brahma Vihara teachings, which are about standing in the middle of all things without losing your seat. And just the, sometimes I find myself just taking the posture of the Buddha sitting as a place of refuge, just to collect myself when my heart feels very, very heavy. To rest tenderly in what is occurring so that my response to the craziness in the world, my response to my son and grandson and nephews and uncles can come from a wise place, from a still, clear place. That's my service. The equanimity prayer also goes on to say that whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be out there making sure that injustices are, are, are made, you know, that we take care of the, the, the way people are harmed. But my heart's not as gripped when I can understand the nature of what's happening. That in the world right now, what we're seeing are, are karmic seeds just popping, just blooming. So we have to deal. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, Things are as they are. Resting with that truth, then responding. Another teacher that I teach with, Gil Fronsdale, shared um, a reading, and it goes like this. It's, it is not our work to force someone's growth to our liking. This is all about keeping your seat. It is the work of love to admire the beauty before you, to give people a sense of safety to unfold, to keep each other company when drowning in anguish. So imagine being that as a source of support for the suffering in the world. And then there are times in working with restlessness and worry where nothing will feel like it's making much of a difference in that moment. It'll just feel like everything you've learned in the practice has just gone out the window <laughs> because of the obsessive quality um, and the energy that this, um, this can grab. And when that happens, I, I've noticed over the years it happens less and less through this practice. But when that does happen, a beautiful self-offering is, is metta, the practice of loving-kindness practice towards yourself. And then extend it to the, to the world, to all people that are suffering. 
So we're talking about metta each day as we unfold through this week. But what metta does over time is that it creates an atmosphere, a heart-mind atmosphere, so that whatever arises is rising within, you know, within an atmosphere of kindness, of care. And that's a beautiful way of suffering less. So in this practice, we're, um, we're establishing within ourselves a, a stability, a stability that doesn't have preferences, where you got to go over there or over there, and you're just tossed around in a lot of different directions. We're, we're looking at how we develop a stability so that we can see clearly, so that we can stay in our seat and keep our hearts open as much as we possibly can. We're looking at how we loosen the grip and discover life as as it's unfolding in the here and now, not out of a place of fear or worry, not out of some regret from the past, but how we can stay right here. And with this practice, we're looking at um, how this moment doesn't have to change in order for you to be free. That the thoughts and the racing of thought does not have to be eliminated, not that they can be, in order for you to have experiences of freedom. So the activity of mind may not stop, but our relationship to that activity can definitely shift. We can be in the practice of saying this moment is like this. Come on in here and sit on. Sit on down right here next to me. Come on. Come on, restlessness. Come on, fear. Come on, Mara. I see you. Sit here. Okay, sit in my lap. All right, fine. You know. Let me hold you for a while. Let me lighten up. Let me stop the struggle. Stop the war in my mind. Stop fighting with what is, just for a few breaths. And this practice, this stillness practice that we have is such a precious thing um, because sometimes we don't know its value until until in retrospect, you know. It's kind of after we've been out of it that we notice, oh, I don't, I'm not doing that. In a, in a gripped way like I used to. That's shifted a little bit. So happy about that. Bell Hooks says it, talks about solitary this way. She says, knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When you can be alone, you can be with others without using them as a means of escape. And this also includes our thoughts our worries, when we can sit, we can stop using people and thoughts as an escape. So our true nature is a sky-like quality. It's unobstructed. It's um, undisturbed by what rises and passes away. 
That's our true nature. And that's what we're returning to, to this practice. The Buddha said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. And freedom from restlessness and worry could feel like being free from debt. And the Buddha says that um, in the absence of restlessness and worry, one abides unagitated with a mind inwardly peaceful. So I see that as a gateway of awakening. So freedom is seen through thinking and the activity of conceptualizing the self and also the world through this efforting around restlessness and worry. And when we bring wisdom to restlessness and worry, the, the uh, endless search for happiness subsides because we can have it moment to moment, breath to breath. So let's sit together for a few minutes. There is no controlling life. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The choice to let go of your known way of being, of holding on, and the choice to let go, the whole world is revealed in your new eyes. Thank you for your attention.